The scripture reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. That's 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible under the seat in front of you. You can turn the page to 897. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather, rather to mourn? Let him who, him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, and especially uh, some of you who, haven't, who I haven't seen in a long time. Good morning and welcome. Uh, let's pray before we begin. O oh God, source of all light, by your word, you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that by being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life, and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's important that I exegete uh, this passage carefully uh, because you will see today and in the following week, um, chapter 5 is sort of a transition of sorts. And transition from what? From chapters 1 through 4. And chapter 4 had ended with Paul posing the question, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, keeping that in mind, uh, it's difficult to be the church in the world. It's difficult to be the church in the world. It's difficult to keep ourselves pure when we're constantly being bombarded with images and messages that directly contradict the teachings of Scripture. And this is what, exactly what the church in Corinth were facing. They had been deeply infected with immorality. They did not root out the sin, and now we see the consequences of their inability, and we'll see even their celebration of sin. You know, nothing really shocks us anymore. We watch, we listen, we even participate in immoral and sexually aberrant behavior. You know, there was a popular TV show in the past that would depict sins like incest, which, and then the storyline is they would randomly put people in power. Uh, I haven't watched it, but in hearing from people, I think it should have just been called Game of Musical Chairs. 
And now we have a movie on Netflix in which they depict 11-year-olds dancing suggestively sexually. 11-year-olds. Uh, it's purported to be a movie that shows why it's bad to have 11-year-olds dancing suggestively, sexually. Um, but I don't need to watch a movie that shows gratuitous scenes of rape to tell me why rape is evil. And by the way, this isn't just wrong. It's evil. This isn't like wrong, like I picked up skim milk at the store when the wife asked for 2%. Oh, I made a mistake. I was wrong. This is the world being given into judgment. So nothing really shocks us anymore. Media like the top musical song of today, books that we read, images that we watch, all seem to try to normalize these aberrations of what God has commanded. And so if you are deep into these things, is it any wonder why you also may not be inclined to be shocked when you see these kinds of aberrations? Shock is set up as a guard so we may be able to recognize that this is not normal. You should rightly get shocked when you see a man running at you, wielding a knife, for instance, it should send signals down to every cell in your body so that you could immediately react and protect yourself. Shock is set up as a guard. But when we continue to get these things normalized in our lives, is it any wonder why we may not be also inclined to shock when we see and experience these things today? And is it any wonder that Psalm 2 shows us that the nations rage? What do they rage against? In Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And listen to this carefully. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We have left the worship of the true God for lesser things. And as J.C. Ryle once said, all nations, all nations are called to worship the one and true God. In Romans, we see that for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In the earlier chapters, we saw the Corinthian church fail in their understanding. What does that mean? They failed in their philosophical yes, but also their spiritual understanding and they were found wanting. Paul warns them that they are not pneumaticos. They're not acting like spiritual people, but they are people that are acting like sarkinos, people of the flesh. Spiritual sins and philosophical error we see here leads to chapter 5. It leads to physical and fleshly sins. Your spirit understanding 
your spiritual understanding manifests onto your physical body. And this is always the case. Whether you realize it or not, whether you think it's intentional or not, this is always the case. We've gone through eras, eras of modernism to postmodernism to whatever we are now, post-truth. I don't, I don't know if we should really call it post-truth. I, I think we really are in an era of paganism. One of the most powerful, and as, as an example, one of the most powerful and influential movements in this nation, this very moment, is the Black Lives Matter movement. And its founders and leaders have directly said that this, they didn't just say this was a Marxist movement, which is antithetical to Christianity. They didn't just say they were a Marxist movement. They said they are a spiritual movement. The reason why you see things like say their names, it's because what they are doing is they are reanimating the lives so that they can use it for their benefit. They pour libations on the ground, which means they pour, put a drink offering on the ground, and they chant the word ashe. It's because in the Yoruba, the West African tribe, these are people who practice the Ifa, a religion of divination. It's to reanimate them and bring forth their own kind of justice. The founders would say, quote, at its core, it's a spiritual movement. Patrice Colores would go on to say that in this interview that I saw, that they need spiritual protection because they are being targeted by the right, the police, and the neo-Nazis. They admit that they would not be able to do this work that they do without spiritual practice. In their words, they say, quote, it would be antithetical. The Messiah that they are looking for would then be founded because of the color of their skin. Someone needs to tell them. Someone needs to continue to pray for them. Someone needs to share the gospel with these people that the Messiah has already come and he's Jewish. This is the movement that is sweeping up our young people and our generation today. It's a move away from the worship of the true and living God, how he has dictated, you worship me this way, and putting out something else. It is, as they say, antithetical to God's statutes and righteous degrees, decrees. The church's mission then, our mission, is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ we don't adapt new or even old ideologies into it. We don't negotiate and compromise with secular ideals. And we don't neglect the commission to make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey everything that our Lord has commanded us to do. The true worship, the true worship that we have been dictated to do is in the scriptures. And that is why people like J.C. Ryle have said, do you want to know the problems of today and the solutions? Just lock me in a room, don't open it up, give me the Bible, and I will tell you exactly what's wrong with the world today. The true worshiper then loves to be surrounded by God's word and God's saints. This is why we do the things that we do. And the teachings of Christ are then displayed in his church. However, 
pagan philosophies and ideologies will always manifest itself physically in the flesh. And what we are seeing is Paul first dealing with division in the church now moves to the immorality of the church. And if you're thinking, man, you know, PUG is going hard at these other people outside, this is not the purpose of this passage. And he is pointing inside the church. It is actually reported that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Sexual immorality here is translated from the word porneia. It's where we get the word for pornography. Graph, which is the suffix for record, shows that pornography is the record or keeping of sexual immorality. Paul had asked, shall I come to punish or bless in harshness or gentleness, and immediately points to that there is porneia in the church. There's no nice and long transition here. There's no room for niceties, and that's to denote the seriousness of the circumstance. What the Corinthian church did was they started adapting and adopting these outside worldly philosophies, puffing themselves up, saying, look how smart we are because we're able to move along with the world and their ideologies, and what has happened is that has manifested itself in porneia. The word porneia is a general term that includes incest, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and all other sexual aberrations that the Corinthians were guilty of. You know, in the ancient world, two cities were considered to be the most immoral cities in the world. And these two cities were Athens and Corinth. These so-called philosophical elite not only thought that these aberrations, these leavings from biblical standards, weren't just simply biological urges that needed to be played out. They celebrated it. They celebrated it. They found reasons to embrace it. They had writings about it. They considered all others then who didn't embrace it as they did to be stupid and foolish and backwater and dumb. But this is not God's design. God's design is specific and it is narrow. And there's a reason for that. It's not because he's a killjoy that wants to keep you from being happy. In fact, God's very design for us is so that we are completely fulfilled, that we have the fullest of joy. I'm giving you an example in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 25, in dealing with sexual immorality, Deuteronomy goes through this whole list, but this is just one part. It says, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. First of all, this is how seriously the Bible took betrothal. 
if you forcibly took someone that wasn't your wife and belonged to another, you were executed. Because it's like, and it says here, it's like you're murdering the husband as well. And that's what adultery is. It's like murdering the partner. Every time then a partner would lie with their spouse, every time you lie with your wife or your husband, this is for married people, but yes, even if you're not married, you look forward to it. It's, yes, you are growing and maturing in love. You're moving in love, yes, but it's also to, to point back to the first consummation, which is signaling the promise that you have made together. Sex isn't simply a biological urge that you need to get out. It's not a nasty thing that we shouldn't talk about or even feel ashamed to talk about. It's a sacred gift that God has given his people. And like any other sacred ordinance we've been given, there is a specific plan that God has intended for it. And you might think, mm, that's the Old Testament. Read Deuteronomy. It's, it's really harsh. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, were there any changes? In Matthew, when Jesus spoke on immorality and adultery and divorce, did he lighten or even abolish any of these laws? How serious was Jesus on this topic? Pluck out the eye. Chop off the hand. It's better to go maimed into heaven than not go at all. And these things were written that we might now know how God feels about these kinds of activities. I was called to a church to give the talk to a group of fifth grade boys. And not just in any way, but I was called and I was asked to teach them on what the biblical view of sex was. And I was happy to help. But I couldn't help but to ask, why me? I don't go to this church. It's hours away from me. I'm not an elder or teacher in the church. And this is what I was told. No one in the church wanted to do it. And the one person that did want to do it decided to take these group of fifth grade boys and just show them a pornographic film. I kid you not, to fifth grade boys in the church. But the activities that the Corinthians were permitting were things that even the secular world wouldn't do. They would look at it and they were like, this is, we don't do this stuff. They, it was not even tolerated among the pagans. And what was that? A man has his father's wife. It's incest. Incest was not only forbidden in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, 8, 20, 11, Deuteronomy 22, 30, 27, 20. You shall not lie with your father's wife. You shall not expose your father's wife's nakedness. You shall not go up in her bed. But it was even forbidden in Roman law. Father's wife most likely uh, is referring to the stepmother. So this is the usual vernacular that you see in the Bible when referring to stepmothers. And so the picture that you can see here is a man remarries. Either he's a widower or something else happened, but he remarries and brings his wife home and the son becomes attracted to his father's new wife. 
The relationship between the son and the stepmother probably then causes a divorce. I say probably a divorce because otherwise Paul would have probably just said adultery. But he doesn't. So probably causes a divorce. So the son has brought about a divorce. So we see here at least three aspects. Just in verse 1, this is what's happening. Number one, this is still going on in the Corinthian church. A man has his father's wife. Number two, he causes a divorce. She's, and number three, she's not even Christian. Otherwise, Paul would have addressed her as well. But instead, we see a statement like verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he is not only continuing this incestuous relationship, he causes divorce, and on top of that, he is unequally yoked. There are so many things going on here with just this one sentence, but what he is showing is that all these things, these things are serious because they destroy families and they destroy the church community. You don't uncover the nakedness of the people in your family because it destroys the family. Incest was and is a serious sin. And this verse started out with, it is actually reported. All this was shared to you so that you can see that this is the first thing that church discipline ought to do. All the things that I've said, all the things that I shared was to show you the first thing church discipline ought to do, and that is number one, expose. Discipline exposes sin. And here is the shocking sin that we see on display here, but the church was tolerating it. Tolerating it. And you are arrogant. Ought you rather not to mourn? Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The second thing discipline does is to warn. It's to warn. And you might think that this is no warning. Doesn't it just look like an outright excommunication? An excommunication just means, ex means out. Communication means out of communion. So you are barred from the table. But it means more than that. I'll contend to you that even something as extreme as excommunication still serves as a warning. You see, the church was puffed up. They were arrogant. You think you're hot stuff but you should be mourning. I don't think they were just tolerating. I think they were celebrating. I think they were proud of their tolerance. Maybe even boasting about their freedom in Christ. They kept saying things like, all things are lawful, and we see them. And Paul uses it in quotes in 1 Corinthians 6.12 and 10.23. All things are lawful. We're forgiven people. Like many of us, they took the verse, I can do all things in Christ, but literally did all the nasty things. They should have been mourning. And the word for mourning is mourning for the dead. It's used when people were mourning the death of Christ in Mark. You shouldn't be celebrating. You should be mourning. The church should be mourning over sin. The church should be mourning when we get these other ideologies inside the church that reject the gospel truth, that say we need some kind of appendage to it. The church should be mourning when we see a display not of Christ, but of sin which is antithetical to Christian values, to biblical truth. When we see wickedness, we mourn. 
And the, when the church gets to a place when it doesn't mourn over sin and even celebrates it, it's on its way out. Do you realize what killed Jesus? Why did Jesus die? Did you know that it was because of sin he was crucified? How then can the church tolerate sin, let alone celebrate it? The church isn't here to give you empty platitudes so that you go home simply feeling better. It's not there to put a band-aid over your gangrene. The church is here to get involved so you stay maturing and growing in purity. This is what we call sanctification. And so whenever this immorality appears, there should be discipline. The great thing about this today, in this age, is that if you are a church that disciplines, then it also helps with the weeds. I'll tell you what I mean. Jesus gave a parable parable about the weeds and wheat, how they grow together. It's so hard to tell them apart that Jesus says not to touch them until the last day. But when you become a church that disciplines, word will get out. Word will get out. You'll be known as that kind of church. Hey, don't join that church. They take the Bible and do what it says. And when the question arises, and we are tempted to think, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. I get it. We're not perfect, but we are forgiven. We're not perfect. We are forgiven. And we use this platitude to dishonor the name of Christ by not obeying him, but rather honor the self. We need to respond as Paul did in Romans 6 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By no means. By taking sin lightly or even celebrating it as professing Christians, the righteousness that you believe that you possess is really a self-centered righteousness, and that is an oxymoron. Self-centered righteousness does not exist because redemption, what redemption does, it brings us into a relationship with Christ Redemption brings us into a relationship with Christ. Now then, those that are saved by the blood of the Lamb, who do we live for? Do we not do the things then that please our commanding officer? The late R.C. Sproul would say that, at the moment I sin, I desire the sin more than I desire to please God. And Jesus was serious about sexual immorality. Revelations 2.18, let me just read that for you. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. But... I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children 
dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is how serious Jesus is about porneia. This is how serious Jesus is about sexual immorality. The church cannot tolerate worldly, excuse me, worldly ideologies, and it cannot tolerate sin. It is pride that the church in Corinth that, that got them inflated, that led them to endorse porneia, which is bad as the sin itself, to endorse it. Excommunication, then, which is a part of discipline, is a divine act, like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. These are Jesus' own words in Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Look at this progression and sequence. If the so-called believer refuses to submit to the elders, tell it to the church, and because he's acting like a heathen, then treat him like one. That might seem harsh. That might seem heavy. But if that's heavy, then look at the other side of what happens when you're not following God's commands. The other side where people have gotten puffed up. They have gotten arrogant. Oh, the church is growing. We're so blessed. We're doing this and that for the community. We see manifestations and gifts of the Spirit. This is all so wonderful. And Paul comes in to this kind of environment and says, yeah, well, there's incest. How many churches have we seen just in the last decades while we were growing up? How many churches have we seen where they make a mark? Their pastors are even writing New York Times bestsellers. And wham, there's immorality in the church. Where are those churches now? Where are those churches now? They're gone. Why act puffed up? when there's a cancer threatening to destroy your church. And at the end of verse 20, Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You know, people have used this passage a lot and in a lot of contexts. However, what is the main context here? Is it worship? Is it prayer? It's discipline. When you come together, this is what Jesus is saying, when you come together to discipline, the Lord is encouraging his church that he is there with them. It's easy to get timid. It's easy to abdicate your responsibility and say you'd rather not stir up trouble. But this is also where Paul says in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The Corinthian church 
with the apostolic commendation is to discipline its member. Then verse 4 says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here we see this verse 20 from Matthew 18 come to us alive again. In the name of the Lord Jesus, with the apostolic accommodation, which is scriptural basis, right? So you are not just excommunicating anyone who you feel like is annoying. And it's the name of Jesus that you do it in. You know, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not a chant. It's not an ashe so that we can bring power to make it happen. We're not making things into existence when we say in Jesus' name. When we gather and we pray in Jesus' name or when we discipline in Jesus' name, what that means is this is consistent with what Christ wants. This is what Jesus does want, and this is what he would have wanted. That's what we mean by saying we pray and gather and discipline in Jesus' name. We have this confidence that we have the Lord with us, and what the Lord promises is that he is with his church. And when we come together to discipline a member, we are doing it in the power and authority of Christ. And Paul, you'll see here, he doesn't excommunicate people from a distance. He doesn't say excommunicated, excommunicated from a distance, what does he do? He calls on the church to do it. This is a great indicator then of the autonomy of the local church. He's saying, I can't do this. You have to do this. You've got to do this. And disciplining is hard. It is difficult and it is serious. And that's why Jesus would say, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What does that even mean? Whatever on earth or heaven, what does that mean? Does it mean binding spirits then? You know, we're here to bind the evil spirit of Teaneck when we pray. No, it's not. That's actually pretty absurd. No, there's no context. And the context, if you read here, it gives us zilch on binding spirits. The binding and loosing that you see here in this context is given to the church And what we're seeing is what happens in the church as far as discipline is concerned. Heaven is acting in support of the church. Why? Because Christ is acting in the midst of his church. Christ is acting in her midst. So this is where verse 20 comes to us. There am I among them. So if this is a divine act that the church is called to do, how does it work? Deliver to Satan? What does that even mean? Like a pizza? What are you delivering people to Satan? The delivering to Satan is also used in 1 Timothy when uh, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander. So who is Satan? Satan is the prince of this world. So ultimately, it is a delivering unto the powers of the world. Delivering unto this world. They will no longer be permitted into the fellowship, its worship, or its sacred ordinances. And this delivering is for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this is the third reason that we see in this passage for discipline. It's to save. 
it's to save. In the Bible, God does use physical ailments as his rod for discipline at times. We see this consistently in the Bible. But it is an ailments for its own sake. Like admonishment, the purpose of discipline is to turn the person's life around. If you are in sin, if there is pornea in your life, then turn away from the sin and repent. You will face the discipline of the church if you don't do it. But to be honest, that's way better than further slipping and ending up damned. And after hearing all this, you might think, well, if we become a church, or if any church really practices this, why can't this person just go to another church? If you kick them out, they'll just attend another service, and they'll say, ha-ha, in your face. And I agree that the situation here is a little different in Paul's time, because if you kicked someone out of the Corinthian church, there wasn't a second Corinthian church you could go to. There wasn't like a first Presbyterian and a second Presbyterian. There was just one church in Corinth. But even if that's the case, even so, the consequences of letting outright sin go unpunished is far worse for the church than worrying about a person church hopping from discipline to discipline. And if a person does do this, doesn't it show that he has no idea that the purpose of discipline was for his good? The sin that he holds now will bar him from entering the kingdom. The purpose of excommunication is for the soul to repent and turn back. Give up the sin. Return to the church. Return to the community of saints. Sin, as we'll see next week, is pervasive. It's deceptive. And you have to chase it out with the rod or have it threaten the health of your entire church. These seemingly innocuous things that we are doing that we think is no big deal Turn on this episode. It's no big deal. But the Bible admonishes the Corinthian church. But the Bible admonishes God's saints. You are arrogant. You are arrogant if you think this is not affecting you. You are arrogant and prideful if you think this is no big deal. So repent before it's too late. In a pastor podcast that I listened to, uh, there are people that they can call in with questions. And there's one particular podcast that stood out. A man told the pastor that he had planned on sleeping with a prostitute. So he made arrangements. He got a room. He planned on hiring this prostitute. But in the last minute, somehow things got tangled up, and it was canceled. So he didn't go through with it. His heart was still torn, so he calls uh, this pastor and asks him in this podcast and here's the question here's the question is it too late for me is it too late for me am i beyond the hope for repentance i gave you guys the situation didn't happen just called it still got canceled is it too late for me am i beyond the hope for repentance think about how you would answer that this is his answer which I was amazed by. 
When he was asked, is it too late for me? Am I beyond the hope for repentance? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was the most wisest, loving, and truthful answer he could have given the young man. Because when you keep on exposing yourself to sin, so much so that you are not shocked anymore, your consciences are seared, your spirit's dulled, there is a time where even tears will not lead to repentance. This is scary stuff. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, it says, For you know that afterwards, when he desired, so he is Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There's going to be a time where if you keep on exposing yourself, it doesn't lead to repentance anymore because your hearts have been seared by sin. Nothing shocks you anymore. You're not disgusted by the things that disgust God. You don't want to please God anymore. You just want to please the self. This is why the scriptures say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's not tomorrow. It's not later in the week. It's not even later tonight when you're alone. It's right now. Right now is when we could call upon the Lord. Right now when his word is proclaimed and it's read aloud, where we sing his praises, right now is the time to to give up your life to Christ. Right now is the time to repent. Pray that it's not too late and turn from your sins and turn to God. And this is what the word assures us with. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So we pray in desperation and earnestness that these sins that we have been exposed to and we are being hit by every single moment of our lives in 2020, where these things don't shock us anymore, we need to turn away so that it doesn't affect us, it doesn't affect the church, but rather we will be a church that is seeking to solely please Jesus Christ, that is seeking the purity and sanctification of our souls, which gives glory to our Maker, which is why we were made. And this is what God has for us, because He is the one that says, I have come to give life and give it to the full. This is why He gives it to us. He wants us, His children, to be full of joy. When we follow God, this is what God wants for his children. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Pray it's not too late and turn from your sins. Give yourself up to the Lord. This is what the scriptures are admonishing us to do right now. Let's pray.